So, Lily, we're in the middle of this historic double strike in Hollywood right now. There are members of the Writers Guild of America, the Screen Actors Guild. They're not working. They're not making new movies or shows. They're not promoting things that have already been released. You're the post-TV critic. Does that mean that you are also not working right now? (laughs) Not yet. That's my colleague Lily Loofborough. Hollywood writers and actors have been on the picket line for months now. Here's actor Steve Buscemi listing some of their demands at a rally in July. We are here because so much is at stake. Fair pay, revenue sharing, health care, retirement funding, a fair casting process, AI protection, and fair compensation. But Lily says that hasn't stopped production for new shows altogether. Yeah, there's still a lot of stuff coming out uh, in the fall, and streamers especially have a pretty hefty backlog of shows that are ready to go. And so while a few are still holding on to shows and not releasing them yet, others are just, you know, going ahead and basically airing new programming as planned. So there's going to be plenty of new stuff to watch, actually, this fall. If this continues for longer, we may see that change, but there will be new shows. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. It's Friday, September 22nd. Today, we preview some of the fall's most hotly anticipated shows. From a modern-day fairy tale... She told me I had three wishes. ...to a murder mystery at the end of the world... There's no going back. ...and we'll dive into how the strikes could still reshape the industry beyond the fall. Our industry has changed exponentially. They want us to step back in time. We cannot and we will not do that. Lily, let's maybe start by chatting about what is coming out over the next couple of months. What are you most looking forward to in the fall lineup? Well, there's going to be a new season of the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. (laughs) How is the training going? Is that crazy? Oh. Are you ready to defy gravity? My God, I've been trying to defy gravity for 15 years. I'm I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah, I'm nervous. You're going to be great. Um, And John Hamm is joining the cast as an Elon Musk type. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, which, you know, is, is fun just because I think that Billy Crudup has played a little bit of a John Hamm-type role on some of Apple TV Plus's programming, including Hello Tomorrow. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch Crudup and Ham basically face off as charming, persuasive, slightly untrustworthy, you know, business guys. This is a chance to create something better, but you have to really, really want it. It's refreshing to get stabbed in the stomach instead of the back, so thanks. Ham is also going to be in the new season of Fargo, which is coming out this November. So Fargo is basically Noah Hawley's television riff, so to speak, on the famous 1996 movie by the Coen brothers. And it takes place within the same universe, roughly. And what it is is an anthology series. So each new season has a new set of characters, a new mystery. And so it's also, I should say, very good at unpacking a certain kind of um, Midwestern, particularly Minnesota nice. Oh, it smells good. Uh-huh. Okay. What time? Oh, I gotta go, hon. 
So it started off with like, you know, Billy Bob Thornton playing the bad guy and Colin Hanks and Martin Freeman. And it has attracted and continued to attract very serious, yeah, star talent. So Kirsten Dunst was in the second season with Patrick Wilson and Gene Smart and Ted Danson. So it's always exciting to see what each new season of Fargo is going to do, not just because it's a new story, but because there are such heavyweights usually involved. Um, And then there's an adaptation of the novel, The Other Black Girl. Now that's coming from Hulu, and that's going to take place in the world of New York City publishing. Nella, there's someone you have to meet. This is Hazel Mae McCall, my new assistant. Really? Hi. It's just really nice that you're here. (laughs) Right back at you. (laughs) There's The Changeling, which is also an adaptation of a novel by Victor Laval, which came out in 2017, that's sort of about parenthood as a, you know, a dark fairy tale. She told me I had three wishes. When it falls off my wrist, those three wishes will come true. (laughs) Do not cut it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, in in terms of goofy stuff, there's going to be a second season of Our Flag Means Death, which is the Taika Waititi project with Reese Darby, who's kind of an ineffective pirate captain. I let him down. I should have just told him how I feel. I will find him. Look, Captain... You know Blackbeard's going to murder you. What? No, why would he do that? You dumped him. I didn't dump him. He dumped you. No, we're on a break. And there's a new Dan Harmon animated show that's going to be called Crapopolis, which has already been greenlit for three seasons in advance. I did it! I killed the Medusa! It took a lot of cutting to figure it out, but I think their weakness is beheading. So a lot clearly coming out in the next couple of months, even with the strike in the background. What of all of these are you most excited about, looking forward to something you would, you know, be counting down until the day that it aired? I'm especially looking forward to a show called A Murder at the End of the World. I think there's something going on here that we don't fully understand. Why is it wherever you go? Death follows. And so this sounds a little bit like Glass Onion. Emma Corrin, who you may remember from The Crown where she played Diana, she was going to play the sleuth. And I'm a sucker for a fun murder mystery, but Brett Marling is so original that I I really can't see what it is that she does with a very well-worn formula because I'm sure it's not going to be exactly what we expect. At the same time, though, is it true that the strikes have led to changes in the TV industry and the landscape? Are there things that we're missing that either aren't part of this lineup or are still changing because of what's going on? Definitely. So late night shows are going to continue to be on pause. So we're not going to have Seth Meyers. We're not going to have Colbert and also Saturday Night Live, you know, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. So that that whole genre is going to be deeply affected and has been deeply affected and will continue to be. There are new seasons of very popular shows like ABC's Abbott Elementary and Night Court that aren't going to come out. Shows that are not written beforehand, essentially, are suffering. But to compensate for that, you know, networks are going to have fewer shows and lean towards reality TV, which is already a hefty percentage of what they do, and then, of course, game shows and sports. 
So, you know, there's a temptation to say that that broadcast TV especially is going to be transformed by the strike just because that's what happened last time. But it is hard to say what that might look like. For example, CBS's decision to get rid of the Late Late Show altogether when James Corden left this year, that was an interesting development. And that may turn out to be a harbinger for the end of Late Night generally. You know, I don't know. That's possible. But yeah, in terms of what we can expect, more reality TV, there's going to be the Golden Bachelor, you know. But that was already, it, it, it's hard to attribute that to the strike because that was, that was in the works long before the strike happened. So I think what's hard is disentangling, you know, already existing trends that were intensifying before the strike versus things that are directly attributable to it. I mean, the strike happened because the industry was already in crisis. So sure, it's very surprising and startling kind of that ABC is going to have no new scripted shows whatsoever this fall. That's, you know, that's that's striking, but it's also a little bit misleading. So we've been talking, Lily, a lot about network television shows that would air on NBC, ABC, CBS. But there's this other side too, right? Streaming. Are there similarly going to be fewer shows on Hulu and Netflix and Max that wouldn't be airing in the next couple of months. So yes, there are going to be fewer shows on all streamers, but that was already going to happen because last year was sort of um, the apex of what we think of as peak TV, meaning so much television that it's almost impossible. It is impossible to watch it all. So there were 599 shows airing last year. Almost 600 shows that aired last year, that's all streaming. Yeah. And TV. That's everything. Wow. Yeah. Um, Scripted shows. And so um, that was an all-time high. And I think the expectation back in early 2022 when, you know, networks were buying up content was that that was going to increase. But then something happened, which is that Netflix reported that for the first time, it lost more subscribers than it signed on new ones. And that precipitated a kind of like collapse in the industry where all these streamers suddenly panicked and stopped buying. So there was already a massive shrinkage in the number of shows that were going to come (laughs) regardless. And so there is going to be less programming for sure, partly as a function of the strike, but also (laughs) that's part of a much larger story of how the streamers, which up until now have had a strategy of buying as much content as they possibly can in an effort to compete against each other, that business strategy has completely collapsed. And the conventional wisdom now is that profitability matters more than growth. Are there any of the streamers that are an exception to what's happening that are maybe in a better position than others, or is it a more even playing field? Well, I mean, Netflix, just because it was there first, is always going to be, you know, in top position. A lot of newer streamers are you know, have been buying like crazy in an attempt to compete with Netflix's considerable, you know, existing archive. Other streamers too, I should say, have a healthy backlog too of programming that they, things that are already ready to go that they could release. So they're better positioned certainly than like linear TV, for example, you know. Um, But Netflix also has something that a lot of streamers don't, which is access to foreign properties that aren't affected by the strike. And so... So that you know they might they might benefit from the hit to broadcast TV if the lack of good programming on broadcast TV inspires even more people to become cord cutters. I see. So because Netflix can put up shows like Squid Game or Lupin, which were produced abroad, that gives them this edge while the strike continues on here. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah. And also, you know, in addition to basically 
taking advantage of shows that have become very popular in other foreign markets. They're intensifying efforts to produce their own. So, for example, South Korea has emerged as a powerhouse and kind of a cultural juggernaut recently. And so... On Netflix, the revenge K-drama The Glory was one of its most watched non-English titles this year. And so Netflix is really capitalizing on that. And um, they're investing, I think, $2.5 billion in South Korean content over the next four years. So that was already announced in May. That's not because of the strike again. These are all sort of like, you know, trends that we are going to see really just be, you know, hyper intensified and concentrated. And I should say, too, the economics of streaming have changed so radically in the last year (laughs) because, you know, there has been this panic over all of these streamers losing enormous amounts of money, including Disney. You know, like the fact that Disney's streamer is losing money, I think, has also given Wall Street pause. And so there's probably going to be a kind of clash of the titans among streamers. They're not all going to make it. You know, in the short term and long term, I think Netflix probably has an advantage just because it got there first. After the break... We'll talk about the impact the strikes could have beyond the fall. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. How long, Lily, do you think these networks and streaming services can hold out? I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to tell. Um... It's been interesting to watch these executives deal with public pressure, (laughs) which I think in some ways, you know, there are ways in which they could wait it out is what I'm going to (laughs) say. What some networks are saying is like, well, we're actually saving money this year because, you know, and, and of course that's deeply misleading. They're saving money because they're not paying writers, actors, and staff to produce shows. (laughs) And so, (laughs) you know, so there is this kind of like artificial narrative of like, well, this is helping us, you know. So, you know, there is no question that this is hurting the streamers for sure. It does not seem likely that they're going to run out of content necessarily, particularly the ones who have been planning a few years ahead. And they, some of them have ways to make content that are not using writers and SAG actors, as we've said. And so while it's true that some will go out of business, it may not necessarily be because of the strike, but rather because there is this inflection point in the business that is going to change television going forward in a very big way. There are too many streamers and most of them are losing money and they're not all going to make it. And meanwhile, the writers have been on strike since May, the actors since July. What is your sense of how long they can hold out? Yeah, you know, it's a long, long time. And of course, that's coming on the heels of the pandemic, which is also very hard on people. So, you know, the folks on strike are determined for sure. There's no question. And a lot of them are hurting. The strike ends when the fair deal is reached. And I'll say to you on this day one, All we have to do is outlast them one day longer. Pre-strike, the SAG-AFTRA Foundation usually got something like 10 to 12 applications a week for assistance, and now they're averaging like, I don't know, 50 to 75 a day. People are hurting, evictions are happening. 
it's bad. You know, it's bad for the industry. It's bad for the city. It's bad for these people who are losing their homes. But, you know, here again, context matters. And one of the reasons that folks are striking is because this is an intensification of what was already happening. This is, you know, there was a long running trend in which people were not making enough to keep up. You know, the median rent in Los Angeles is around 3,000 bucks a month. And during the pandemic, a lot of studios laid off or fired all kinds of folks, you know, or reduced their hours. And a lot of those jobs have not come all the way back. So it's hard, again, to disentangle cause and effect here. You know, it one of the reasons the strikes are happening is because people have been struggling so much and their safety cushions are gone. Lily, a lot of people will point to the last strike over a decade ago, 2007, 2008, as the kickoff for this reality TV boom. Do you think that there could be a similar lasting effect from the strike that's going on this year? The lore is that that is what gave rise to this sort of hypertrophy of reality TV, right? <laughs> so, you know, Survivor, et cetera. It just launched this sort of mega industry of reality shows that we all kind of live in now. In terms of what is likely to happen moving forward. My sense is that there's going to be more of a focus on streaming, at least in the short term, because people will want programming and streamers are better positioned right now probably to offer it than some of the traditional networks. And so I think the funny result is likely to be that streaming, which has already gotten much less pleasant to use, is going to get a lot worse and it is going to become closer to basic cable. Huh. Just like the user experience, or or what do you mean by that? Yeah, the user experience. You remember, you know, basic cable has like those endless, you know, rows of channels that nobody in the universe ever watches that get included for some reason. <laughs> I think there are ways in which like streamers Channel are starting. Channel 1014, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think streamers are going to start approximating some version of that. It's going to get more expensive and it's going to get ads. It's going to become a much less pleasant way to watch your entertainment. And that, by the way, is, again, is not new. It was already happening because of the sort of, you know, panic that was fully underway last year. So one advantage of streaming has, has long been the absence of ads, you know, the freedom from commercials, which, among other things, really revolutionized what television could be because television was structured around the act break. Right. And so absent that constraint, a lot of programming has done interesting and also sometimes undisciplined things like going way too long or whatever, you know. But now Netflix has A, increased their pricing, B, they've introduced ads, and C, they have cut down on password sharing. Right. And I, so I felt that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so all kinds of, you know, cheap or free services with ads like Amazon Freebie and Tubi have popped up. And that is happening for a reason. So I think going forward, there's going to be less content available. It will be more expensive to access. And also, even really established brands that were known for their curation are going to get worse, right? So, so Warner Brothers Discovery merged with HBO and they turned HBO into Max, which made it a thousand times worse, right? Like HBO, the thing that it had going for it, among others, was that you went to it because you could expect good curation. And that had real value in a moment when there are 599 shows airing and you have to figure out what mm -hmm. to watch, mm -hmm. right? So people knew that they could trust HBO to find something good. 
now, if you go to Max, you're slogging through all kinds of stuff from Discovery, etc. Slogging through the offerings is a pain. You have to filter for the good stuff yourself. And also, you know, they took a bunch of great old HBO shows off the service last year for tax breaks, basically. So, you know, Westworld at home with Amy Sedaris and Mrs. Fletcher and, and Vinyl. You know, those trends are all likely to get worse. I mean, what what you're describing actually is really explaining what I often feel like I end up doing, which is spending the amount of time that I want to be watching TV, period, actually just sort of scrolling through different streaming services, figuring out what to watch, and then so much time has gone by that it doesn't quite feel worth it anymore. Is there something that you feel still optimistic about through all of this, or does that just get worse? Yeah, well, that no, I mean, what you're saying is so true. It's decision fatigue, right? Like, <laughs> I, d- I didn't realize that's what was happening to me, but I think it is. <laughs> totally. And of course, you know, I think one advantage that traditional TV had going for it is at least you can flip through channels, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but not even that now. So I am optimistic in that I think that, you know, creative people are going to keep existing. I think that a lot of programming that was flourishing because it was okay to court a niche audience, you know, I hope that some of that is going to continue to exist because some really incredible television resulted from it, you know, like Reservation Dogs, like Atlanta, like like Fleabag. But I think that in the new climate, I think there may be an increase in an emerging genre that I'm actually kind of hopeful about, which I, I'm just, I'm calling it semi-reality TV. <laughs> I don't know what Semi-reality, what is, what is that? Um, so not straight reality TV, as we have come to understand it, but rather kind of more artful, deliberate, weird experiments that are kind of playing openly with and tweaking conventions that we associate with reality TV. And I'm thinking about shows like The Rehearsal, or Jury Duty, or Paul T. Goldman, these shows that have a documentary component, kind of a reality component, but which would probably fall into the category of creative nonfiction if they were literature. I actually called out specifically what was going to happen. Plaintiff was going to make a closing statement. Something crazy was going to happen. We adjourn for the day. Here we are. How are you that psychic? Because this happens every day, Barb. (laughs) There has not been a single day that we've had that's just been smooth. There's always something crazy that comes up. This is literally feels like reality TV. And I think that there's going to be an appetite for that because audiences have become very sophisticated in terms of understanding the fakeness of reality TV. So I think that there is a huge audience of very educated consumers now who are fluent in these tropes who are kind of excited about seeing them broken down. So I'm hopeful that if reality TV is going to be even bigger, that maybe some <laughs> some sort of spin-off genres, so to speak, will flourish that are more interesting to me anyway. Lily, thank you for helping get us set up for the fall. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) This was fun. Lily Loofborough is the Post TV critic. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Lucas Trevor. It was edited by Robin Amer and Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sam Baer. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Izadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop Sand, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Trinity Webster Bass. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 